This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined today by Kate Andrews and Fraser Nelson. Now in the past week, Liz Truss has resurfaced, giving her version of events that led to her downfall uh, in a Sunday Telegraph piece, but also in an interview with Spectator TV, which listeners to this podcast would have heard. But today we're talking about whether or not she was right Um I mean, it's quite a good question and I think it encompasses a lot of things. And I think we have two different perspectives here. So before we get into the proper ding ding, Fraser, maybe just um, you, why don't you, I'm going to ask both of you to just set your positions out in one sentence. Fraser, you can go first. Well, I don't think it's too ding ding, but over several months, um, yeah, when we were just debating this trust, what she's trying to do, even during leadership contest, Kate and I have had different perspectives. I've been a lot more sympathetic to Liz Truss's um, general critique of the sclerosis of government and of the needs on occasion for deficit finance tax cuts. Um, I think that her, um, her downfall was to do with a combination of factors. I now think that enough time has passed for us to separate them, to look at what she did wrong, but also what she did right, and whether her fundamental message was one which was not only correct, but one that the Conservatives are going to have to end up going back to, whether they like it or not. Kate? Fraser and I are going to agree on some of the bigger picture messaging around the necessity for growth, around the necessity for getting that tax burden down. But the question of this podcast is not, are tax cuts a good thing, or is going for growth the right thing to do? The question is, was Liz Truss right? And the problem is that while she talked the talk, her actual mini budget was not really a tax cutting budget, wasn't really a growth budget. It was a borrow and spend budget. And on that point alone, I think it's quite, given the fact that it's basically all she got to do, that is her legacy, is one that uh, I think is fundamentally wrong. Fraser, disparity between what Liz Truss said and what she did. I mean, you look at the energy bailout and surely you can't disagree with that. No, I think the disparity lies between what she did and what she was then accused of doing. So fairly early on, right, they, she did a dividing line with the Sinekites. She set a trap for them, which they walked right into. She proposed uh, that she would not increase corporation tax in the way that they wanted to, um, and that that would produce growth. Now, by the way, that isn't a tax cut. That's simply not increasing tax. Uh, but nonetheless, it sort of flicks a switch with a certain sort of conservative, uh, where you think, oh, this is terrible deficit finance tax cuts. So you end up with a debate and she was she, she, she very cleverly manipulated the leadership debate into a question as to whether deficit finance tax cuts are fairy tales in Rishi Sunak's view. Uh, this is crazy. And then the then you say, well, this, this, is, this is Reaganism, where we stand for Thatcherism, completely bogus uh, distinction. So you end up with what I regard as a false narrative that Rishi Sunak warned during the summer that deficit finance tax cuts wouldn't work and he was vindicated by the mini-budget, and that was the moral of Liz Truss's premiership. Now, I, I don't think that was the case at all. I think her tax cuts were pretty small. I think they were never going... I think the scandal it, was that they, they were never really going to move the dial on economic growth, but it suited a lot of people to pretend otherwise. Now, I agree with Kate that 
lot, she says 60%, that I think is a fair figure of her budget, was borrow and spend. Mm. Because she saw the energy crisis coming up. Now, in my view, one of her mistakes was to do a, an energy bailout far more generous than it should be. It gave multimillionaires a subsidy when she didn't have to. Um, but by the way, almost every government in the Western world, whatever its political leanings, ended up doing something similar. I mean, the Swedes didn't, as ever, they're pretty sound. Uh, but uh, but she, she, I think, jumped too far in there. But the way that it's remembered, ah, that you should cut taxes, she proved it doesn't work. That is, I think, a myth, which, um, while it does suit Sunak and his campaigners, this is a misrepresentation on their part of the moral of Liz Truss. I think with all due respect, that oversimplifies what happened over the summer because it wasn't obvious to me at all that, and it never has been, that Rishi Sunak is delighted to have the tax burden at a 70-year high, at a post-war high, but rather that Rishi Sunak is a fiscal hawk and that he had to preside over a treasury that at the time was doing, you know, the largest bailout packages in peacetime for decent reason. The coronavirus kept us all at home and it's not reasonable to ask people to stay at home and not go to work and then have them skip their rent and mortgage payments. Um, but he saw inside the treasury, he saw those numbers, he saw the extent to which debt interest alone was going to be costing us tens of billions of more pounds. And I think he quite rightly said that this was not the time to go on a major spending spree through deficit finance tax cuts or through offering more money. I don't think the argument was ever there's no circumstance where a deficit finance tax cut can't work. The argument was we have interest rates already going up. The world already seems to be turning on this opinion that we can have access to cheap money forever. We have the deficit at a record high post-COVID. The debt is nearing 100% of GDP. This is not the moment for deficit finance tax cuts. Talk about spending cuts all you want and then get your tax cuts. But this is not, if you're not willing to talk about the spending cuts, this isn't the moment for major deficit finance tax cuts. And so I think that's a simplification of, of the argument that was actually happening. And I go back to the question of this podcast, was Liz Truss right? In Fraser's own words there, these weren't really tax cuts. I mean, this is a Liz Truss line. These weren't really tax cuts. They were just freezing, um, lifting corporation tax. They were undoing a very recent tax on national insurance. Well, you can't really have this both ways because she says in the Sunday Telegraph and in her Spectator interview multiple times that, you know, tax cuts are great. She was going for tax cuts. That was the problem. And then she says, oh, no, 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 wait a second. It wasn't really tax cuts. Actually, you're overstating what I was doing. I don't think Liz Truss has even really made up her mind about what happened. But I think it's very clear from the numbers what happened, which is that she was about to borrow at a time where, you know, and, and she should have seen this. Her chancellors should have seen this. The Treasury should have seen this. Everyone else could see it. She was borrowing at a time where it was becoming increasingly more expensive and difficult to do so. And then she set the world's eyes on the UK and then everything came crashing down. And was, and that, was that the main problem, Kate, do you think? The fact that she's borrowing so much, was that the main problem that the markets rebelled, that everything went... I think it's in Kate's point more that she was talking about uh, having these tax cuts. On one hand, she wanted to be given credit for tax cuts and therefore that would have been funded mm. by borrowing. But on the other hand, she was saying, well, but the tax cuts weren't that big anyway. So like, which way around was it? You're right, Cindy, in that the bluff of her premiership was that she wanted to use the language of, of tax cuts. She wanted to send symbols. She wanted to send a message. And I understand the logic behind that message, that Britain is open for business, that we are now a competitive country, that you can, people should 
could, if you look at the Sunday Times rich list, the majority of them are basically immigrants. So you, every country now needs to compete pretty much for the tax revenue which the super rich bring. Now, this jars with the political message where you regard the super rich as people who just sit in their mansions and can be taxed however much the government wants to tax them. So um, I think what she, the reason, for example, she did the politically insane, but nonetheless economically rational, cutting of the top rate of tax from 47p to 41p was, I mean, in her view, by the way, there was, and she says in Spectator TV, there was never going to be a good time for this. It was always going to be controversial. So let's bite the bullet. Let's declare to the world that um, Britain is now open for business. And that would make, I think the Treasury costed that at £2 billion. I think it would have cost even less because it probably would have brought in more money than it, it cost. But nonetheless, that is like a tiny proportion of our overall package. But it sent a big politically difficult message. But it also set another message that under Liz Truss, Britain was going to be a government that was going to be always... Um, that would prioritise tax cuts, that would welcome wealth creators. I remember back in the day um, going down, um, when you used to get in an airplane, they've got these funny little adverts, which they've got in the gangway between the, the airport and the aircraft. And HSBC did one where they listed the top rate of tax in various countries in the world. In Britain, then, it was 40%. I guess they were saying that this, it's a sort of... Um, uh, an arbitrary for how wealthy people are treated in various countries. And 40%, the Labour government for almost all of its time made sure that Britain was very competitive. Now, Liz Truss sees the value in getting it back down to where it was under Labour to compete for those things. So she wanted to have the verbal positioning of a low-tax government, even though the tax cuts that she actually made weren't that big. It's quite um, standard for a politician to have a verbal positioning which is not entirely supported by the policies. But, but you're right in that you're saying that her tax-cutting bark was a lot bigger than her bite. But was that what, what brought down her government? I don't think so. Well, a few things there. Um, that may have been her attempt at messaging. It certainly didn't land. International investors didn't buy it. She's done so much harm to the messaging of tax cuts and going for growth. Let's just jump to what I think Fraser really wants to get into and where he sees the real defense here, um, which is that international trends were against Liz Trust from the beginning. And that, you know, whilst I would certainly argue the mini budget played a huge role in what happened, uh, one that she has still not taken responsibility for. There are absolutely international factors at play that interest rates and the cost of borrowing were going up for countries world over. But I'm just going to quickly say a few things about that. I'm sure Fraser will try to rebut them. Um, that succeeds probably. <laughs> we'll let listeners decide. We'll let listeners decide. There is no doubt that you can see um, the expe market expectation for interest rates in the UK jumping by a percentage point over August. And again, an international trend. And I know a lot of people are saying, see, look, it was going in that direction anyway. It's, it's simply not her fault. Well, look, you know, she was elected by the party members and brought into Downing Street to make political decisions. And if you're seeing that kind of climate, which by the way, Rishi Sunak was warning about, but he wasn't the only one, lots of people were. If you, if you see that climate, perhaps you think to yourself, maybe going all out, biting the bullet, as Fraser says, but actually throwing caution to the wind, not taking any advice, not being in listening mode, let's call it, and keeping your rather spectacular mini budget out of everybody's hands because you don't really want feedback. Let's not forget she actually ignored her own economic advisors, they say, towards the end of August when they said, 
a lot of this is great, but by the way, you're, you may be very careful. Don't move too fast. She said, thank you. Goodbye. Ignored their advice. Um, perhaps it is the job of politicians to look at those international trends, which are working against them and say now is, or is not the time for something. So I don't think the simple fact that the world was changing absolves her of what she did, but crucially you look at the numbers, you look at the chart, it's pretty black and white here that the, the day of the mini budget or a few days prior when it was starting to be trailed and some big stuff was clearly going to be in it, that's when you see the spike, mm. the mini budget spike for both the expectation around interest rates and for the cost of borrowing compared to countries like the US. Okay, I think we should be clear what spike you're talking about. Fraser's going to talk about the LDI pension funds and that absolutely plays a crucial role here. However... However, one might go back to my original point. I'm going to let you come, Fraser. One might go back to my original point and just say that part, a huge part of being a politician and not being a pundit or journalist or a think tanker or, you know, anybody else is that you have to be a little bit cautious about where the landmines might be. And she has not taken any responsibility for rushing something out that she deliberately tried to keep all eyes off at a time where she knew things were fragile. She didn't know about the LSAI pension funds. Basically, nobody did, but she knew things were fragile. And ultimately, her decision to rush ahead ended up exposing something maybe she couldn't have seen coming. But you could also argue a lot of other people would have been way more cautious in case something was around the corner. When we do the trial of Liz Truss, um, the exhibit A will be the graph of um, borrowing rates, how much the British government was being charged for, for 10 or 20 or 30 year debt. And that um, is a chart which basically shows, because this is, although the Bank of England might do rates relatively small, you know, the, the what really matters is what percentage the government pays for that, that decides. Um, now, that went from, you know, 2% to 4%, and ultimately it peaked at, I think, um, 4.5%. Now, this, of course, matters because it showed that the era of cheap debt has come to an end, not just in Britain, but worldwide. Now, it is certainly true that Britain had it worse than other countries. So I think the more meaningful graph here is Exhibit B, the difference between um, British borrowing rates and German borrowing rates. Now, that the, the boon spread, as it's called, and basically had it shows that Britain had gone way, sure, they were going up worldwide, but ours were going up by more than anybody else during the trust period. Now, that was what I think I on this podcast I refer to as the Muppet premium, how much more we pay for getting things wrong. So I think the Bank of England itself um, did an analysis saying that half of the rate rises were to do with global factors, half were British factors. Some people will draw the line even further and say about three quarters were global, one quarter was British, but whatever, let's say it was a mix. Now, the question there is, let's then look at the British factors. How much of that was Liz Truss's um, behaviour, her language, her decision to borrow staggering amounts of money from the market at precisely the moment the market were rebelling against high borrowing governments? And usually the prosecution of Liz Truss points to the, the so-called Muppet premium and says, look at this, the only reason our interest rates were way ahead of Germans is because of her behaviour, the markets uh, didn't want to go along with it, and so they didn't. And look, as soon as she got rid of Quasi Quartang, as soon as it was clear that the trust project was coming to an end, then UK bond yields went back in line with where historically they've been in relation to German and American bonds. Now, that is the classic case for the prosecution of Liz Truss. 
thinking that yes, um, rates went up everywhere, but they went up extra especially high in Britain because of her. Now, this is where I, by the way, I, I agree with Kate that to borrow all of this money at this time with so little regard to what was happening in the markets, I think was was crazy. I think. So you think she was wrong there? Oh, absolutely. She was wrong there. I, full stop, perhaps. No, but not full stop, because I think she is right to say that the elephant in the room were the liability-driven investments, the LDIs. Now, you now to me, this is really interesting because something else happened then, and it is simply impossible to understand the downfall of this trust without discussing these LDIs. Now, for various reasons, the pension industry in Britain had put so lots of assets into into these LDIs. It's basically an accounting quirk. But if you do, but almost nobody, not the Wall Street Journal, not the FT, uh, nobody really wrote about these LDIs until it all blew up. And this was, to my mind, very similar to the um, subprime loans that led to the last crash. Things that everybody knew about, but nobody really thought was a problem. And Liz Trust's Sunday Telegraph article, she said that she was astonished to learn that the assets of, of these, these LDI pension funds were like equated to 60% of GDP. Absolutely, we're talking literally trillions of pounds. Now, the great problem here, and there was a House of Lords Committee report looking into this, was they had not been properly regulated and not been properly stress tested. Um, for complicated reasons that I won't go into in, in, in this podcast, they get into problems if interest rate moves too too quick, too fast. So they trust they'd stress tested to see what happens if the um, if, if it goes up by one percentage point. But beyond that, they hadn't really stress tested it. And they didn't realize that when you're getting to one and a half or two percentage points, then this whole domino starts to wobble and it is the biggest domino you ever did see. Now, what happened at exactly that time was that not just Britain, but the whole world, including international investors, were realizing that Britain had hardwired into its economic architecture this massive liability, which all the regulators had mixed had missed. And these guys were already having to sell assets to keep the liquidity going. It was a disaster. The Bank of England came up with a 65 billion bailout fund to try to save his LDI investments. So this was a full-on crisis as you can get. But at the time, all of it was blamed on this trust. Now, it was a multitude of factors, but I think she is right to say that there was a bit of a scandal. Everybody is blaming her. The Bank of England's blaming her. It suits a lot of people to hide behind Liz Truss and say that she was the one who brought Britain so close to the brink during that time, where in fact it was sloppy regulation that meant that these L- the LDIs were an accident waiting to happen. So it's yours and Liz Truss's positions that had she done everything that she did, but our LDI situation was somewhere a bit more healthy, then none of the meltdown would have happened. I think... The, I, I think had it not been for the LDIs, she'd probably still be in government. I think that the... Kate? Um, well, no, I'm not saying that there wouldn't have been a caustic market reaction. There would have been. But let's remember why she lost government. She was kicked out in the end because Simon Case, the head of the civil service, gave her a written letter saying that you now need to abandon your agenda and if you don't, this country is going to collapse. Now, she therefore felt that she had to agree with her. She knew that Kwasi Kwarteng wasn't going to agree with her, so she fired him. The moment she fired him, she was finished. She admitted that, and the interview released on Monday. That So she and she gave up. But that's quite a causal link, isn't it? So so triggering the LDIs means that she had to abandon her uh, agenda, which meant she had to fire Kwasi Kwarteng. But at that point, she had already lost the trust of the Conservative Party, and it was things like the fracking vote, which ended up in, you know, 
chaos in Parliament that meant she really actually did resign the day after. So I, I don't know if... Anyway, Kate, what, but, what do you but, think? But, but, so just quickly, let's say there were like four or five, even ten layers of Liz Truss's mistakes. So she was wrong. Cumulatively, they were enough to topple her. Take away the LDIs. Yeah. I think she could have roughed it out. But that's not to say I think she was right. I think she made a hell of a lot of mistakes. But I don't think those mistakes were necessarily fatal. What made it fatal was that she did it on top of two things. One was the global bond market spike. And secondly, was the LDI disaster. I'm pleased we have on the record in this podcast that Fraser literally just said, that doesn't mean I think she was right. I feel like things are moving my way. Let me break a little bit of that down because Fraser laid out the classic case for the prosecution. But of course, it's not one that I'm actually making because I've never pretended that the LDI pension fund scandal was not a major part of this. There's not very much discussed, is it, Kate? Even now people don't refer to the LDI scandal like we did with subprime because they all say burn the witch. Fraser, you're completely right that there are a lot of people out there for whom it suits just to say nothing else happened. It was all Liz Truss all the time. There's no other factor here. But that's not the case I'm making. It's not the case that we've ever had at The Spectator. Um, I think there are a few things here. You say without the pension scare, she might still be in office. Maybe. We'll never know that counterfactual. But let's look at when the numbers actually started changing, the cost of borrowing. Um, Compared to Germany, our cost of borrowing started going off the chart around the 20th of September. Now, what happened on that day? The Treasury tweeted out, get ready for the growth plan, right? The mini budget started to look like a maxi budget and there were briefings about all kinds of tax cuts and markets got nervous. Let's look at the day that things changed compared to the US. It was the 23rd of September, the day of the mini budget. Within hours before we knew about this pension scare, borrowing costs were drifting, not drifting, spiking upward because it was very clear that what they were doing was irresponsible compared to the state of the public finances as we knew them then. And then on the Sunday, Quasi Quartang goes on the media, says some version of you ain't seen nothing yet. And then overnight, the Asian markets show that investors are not so comfortable with that. And then we get the pension scare, which Fraser, you're absolutely right, makes the situation way worse. But here's, here's ultimately what I struggle with. Even if you want to say, and I this is generous, but let's say it really was the LDIs and otherwise this budget would have been okay. Was it not Liz Truss who was from the beginning of the summer going after the Bank of England for their incompetency and their inability to manage inflation? If you were to have any prime minister based on their rhetoric who might be nervous about the scandals lurking over what the Bank of England is supposed to be regulating and following, Wouldn't it be Liz Truss? The Liz Truss I knew just years ago would constantly talk about how government was spending too much, about the instability of the public finances. Was this not the champion for a decade of getting the public finances in order through tax cuts and also spending cuts? Where did that go? I mean, one of the difficulties here, one of the reasons I just feel she was wrong is because I think she went against everything she knew when she put this mini budget forward. If you're already skeptical that the governor of the Bank England isn't so good at his job, and by the way, he hadn't been so good at his job with inflation for the past 18 months, it's reasonable to think that. And if you're the one who's always skeptical of the state of government and its public finances. Why did you take every piece of advice, throw it out the window and push forward with such a radical borrow and spend agenda? She's never addressed this. She's never indicated she wants to address this. She just wants to say circumstances out of my control brought me down. And I would say, no, circumstances completely within your control brought you down And the world didn't help and the circumstances didn't help, but that is not an obvious excuse to me for what she did. 
I'm quite passionate on this topic because I'm really sad to be on this side of the argument. I mean, I, I've written about this for The Spectator over the summer. You know, Liz Truss became the darling of the free market right because she was championing causes that I believe in and and really wanted to see implemented. It was such an opportunity for change. And I just started to get nervous over the summer where like in one day she pledged to over 10 billion pounds, I think to secure one vote. And I thought, gosh, something isn't quite right here. If you're committing to HS3, Liz Truss, who has spent her whole time in government, you know, talking about the merits of a smaller state, it became so obvious that she was abandoning so much of, of her free market ideology. And, you know, Fraser, my question to you is let's swap out Liz Truss for any other politician, actually, ideally a labor politician. What if this were Keir Starmer? What if this were Jeremy Corbyn? The kind of money she wanted to spend is the kind of money Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn would talk about spending. And what if they had presented such the exact same budget with, to your own words, not that many tax cuts, huge borrowing and spending? And what if the LDI pension scare had happened? Would we be sitting here being like, they were so right. Gosh, they really, they knew what they were doing. It's such a shame that the world came again. No, we wouldn't. We're doing this because of Liz Truss's rhetoric. And she's been really good at the rhetoric for a really long time. But when push came to shove, she abandoned it all and acted in a way that big spending politicians like to act. And you know what? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sad about it. I'm really heartbroken about it, but I feel like I went through the stages of grief over the summer and have come to terms with it. And I think a lot of people are still in denial or terrified that, um, if they concede that she was wrong, they're also conceding that tax cuts and a growth agenda are wrong. I see it slightly differently. I think let's separate these topics now. Let's separate them as soon as possible because the longer we tie Liz Truss and what she did in that mini budget to a genuine economically liberal agenda, I think that's the longer we're dooming ourselves. I agree that there is a tax cutting baby that not ought to be thrown out with a high spending bathwater. Wow. <laughs> what, you what a metaphor. No, love that's it. great. Continue. Right, but but, but, but they, that's the point here. But the the, the, the thing is, Kate, that, that's obviously what I take issue with is the official narrative of this trust. That it was the deficit finance tax cuts, and pretty much that can sum up what what went wrong. Right now, I agree with you that what what, what while she used language of tax cuts, what she did was language of panic spending, and I think she is is very guilty of doing precisely what Tories have always done in a panic, which is just spend borrow staggering amounts of money and assume that the governments w- would finance it, and we should add to this quasi wartime by the way he never again but he was his belief that look at the markets he was saying they if they lend britain all that money during furlough to close the economy down of course they can be relied upon to lend money to get the economy started now my criticism of both of those is that the um the the tax cuts the relatively modest tax cuts they had were never going to achieve the two percent growth that they wanted i also think that the um the, the real uh, engines to growth would would have only come from reforming spending Neither of them showed very much interest in doing that either. On the contrary, they jacked it up. So I didn't want to position, I didn't back her during the leadership contests. I didn't, um, uh, there were lots of people who really backed her budget when it came out. Um, I wasn't one of them.
one of them. To be fair to you, Fraser, I mean, one of the fun things about this debate is that you aren't defending a position that you held and are trying to now, you know, say, no, no, look, I wasn't totally wrong. You have retrospectively looked back (laughs) and thought, actually, she was kind of onto something, which I think is really interesting. Right. But because I think now we can talk calmly about it, or we couldn't at the time and we can disaggregate it. We can say that the LDI scandal was of huge, that is one of the, I, I can't, even right now, I think it's amazing how there are so few people talking about how this country's economy almost sank because yet again, we missed a fairly basic subprime-esque problem. Where were the regulators? What were they doing, etc. But the sheer drama of list trust has eclipsed what I regard as important points that should be come out. I'm also concerned that the Conservatives as a party are going to think, you know what the moral of this is? Nobody ever cuts taxes. We're getting back into this sort of strange Osborneite position, how tax cutters are regarded as swivel-eyed loons. So you end up with them. Um, it used to be the highest taxes in 77 years, but now it's the highest taxes, the highest tax rate in the peacetime history of this country. Now, that's one of the reasons that our growth has been choked to death. Government has grown out of all size in relation to its usefulness. People are being um, taxed. To death. But Liz Truss was going to grow that government. Well she, well, well, she was ultimately, yes. But right now she she is being castigated. First of all, she's taken, she's taken out a word and being a great tax cutter, where I think that's an exaggerated statement. I don't think she really was. And then secondly, she's be, the, her, her downfall is being attributed, I think, wrongly to the small portion deficit finance tax cuts. And even we're having a debate over the Office for Budget Responsibility. I think there's, there's more to that, though I think it's slightly more technocratic. For example, she was saying in her review, um, effectively she was saying that she doesn't think that the corporation tax increases would have raised any money, let alone the £20 billion pounds that the OBR did. She might be right about that. I mean, there's, there's good evidence for that from the 2010s. But let me once again go back to the question of this podcast. Was Liz Truss right? Are corporation tax hikes right? It is not, is, you know, are supply side reforms good? It is, was Liz Truss right? And I reject this narrative that she is the first person to ever consider a tax cut. There's this idea going around this week that, you know, she is the only person in the world to come up with the idea that supply side reforms might be good. The reality is that people have been talking about this for a long time, but politicians get to implement things. So I am judging the implementation. I'm not giving her a lot of credit for the dialogue. And on the implementation, turns out, I think she was spectacularly wrong. Fraser, could you also be doing exactly what you accuse her critics of doing, which is just taking her too much at her word? Because it seems to me, from what I'm hearing from you, is that you still think she's, you know, everything that in her IEA days or in in the days that she knew Kate, you know, what she says on the tin is what she believes in. And nevertheless, as Kate says, when she had the chance to prove her beliefs, she didn't do that. So are you being too charitable that she, when she says she believes in these things, that she actually does believe in these things? I think Liz Trust, like Boris Johnson, went into number 10 believing certain things. I think both of them ended up doing things very different to what they believed. And I think this is quite often the story of politics. You can go in there armed with certain principles, but you're tested, and then you're unable to translate your principles into action. And then they deserve criticism for that. Yeah, you as, bet. As you did for Boris don't, don't get me wrong. I, I think that Liz Trust was nine-tenths wrong. But I do think that in part she was right. And that puts me in a minority of people willing to say that. All right. Well, I think I think I think Kay, you would say that she got some things right as well. I absolutely agree that she diagnosed many problems correctly. I think that the longer that we pretend that she also 
that, that I think the longer we pretend that her solutions uh, were free market ones and would have solved the problem, uh, the more damage we're going to do to the reputation of economic liberalism, which we know ultimately we need to get us out of this stagnant growth cycle that we're in. But can I ask Kate if you think she was right in the points about how there are not that basically most of the economic forecasters are unsympathetic to supply side economics and tax cuts. Uh, the big institutional ones, perhaps, I heard for the magazine out today that, frankly, she's not wrong to point to the natural bias that becomes embedded in places like that. But I also point to a lot of the independent forecasters and optimistic liberal ones, ones I'm not sure she would take an issue with, or let's say she wouldn't categorize as part of the blob. And those forecasts, when they looked at the mini budget, uh, did not think that she was getting to 2.5% growth. The most optimistic one was closer to 2%, but that was an outlier. Most people thought that the mini budget itself and the surprises in it was going to add marginally to growth. Now, look, we now know this week that uh, in December, the economy contracted by 0.5%. We know that in Q4 last year, we had 0% growth. I take even just a little bit. I really would. But this idea that the forecasters, that the world, that every institution, that every investor just hated her tax cutting agenda and that's why she failed is so obviously wrong. Well, I didn't quite expect that we would be wrapping up with both sides saying she got some right, she got some wrong. Um, although Fraser, direct quote, you just say she'd got nine tenths wrong. So I'm not <laughs> sure if that means Kate won this one. And that's not even counting her. To me, one of the biggest mistakes was just packing the government full of her allies and putting her opponents. I mean, quite. you know, they're so even set aside the budget. There's so many reasons why ultimately she was going to fail. Well, my, 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 my final question to you both then, in brief answers, is do, do you think fundamentally what she got wrong was her attitude? Her attitude of being thinking the world was against her, therefore she wasn't going to listen to the institutions, she wasn't going to listen to her detractors in the party, she wasn't going to listen to the circumstances in the market, she would just go and do what she wanted to do. So, so the, this attitude of not bringing in other perspectives, whether that's in cabinet or whatever it is, is that where fundamentally she's gone wrong? The generous interpretation is that she thought she had a lot to do in a very small period of time. This is essentially what she says in the Sunday Telegraph, and she didn't have time to think or to listen. But you can't hold a job like that and basically reject everybody around you. And it was when I learned um, and, and read that her economic advisors, many of whom went on the record in The Spectator about trustonomics and what they were trying to do, it's when she was ignoring their warnings towards the end, and you couldn't really find a group that was more sympathetic to what she wanted to do, that I thought, gosh, th this is a dangerous attitude. And yeah, Cindy, I think you're right. The attitude was um, setting her up to fail in the end. The attitude wasn't itself a problem. Her inability to deliver, that was the issue. I mean, she basically was the equivalent of a the first time skier who went to the top of the mountain, off-piste, gathered up a hell of a lot of speed, and then hit a tree. I see you're getting in the mood for Mont Blanc next week. <laughs> I am. I can't wait to. I, I'm going to stick to the blue slopes, but I'm not going. To, I'm going. To, I'm going to take the list trust um, moral and not be too ambitious in the slopes I go down. <laughs> not hit the ground on day one. <laughs> Fraser and Kate, thanks very much. And if you can't get enough of Fraser and Kate on economics, then join us on our live coffee house shots on the 15th of March after the budget, um, where Katie and Fraser will be joined by Katie Balls as well and a special guest to get tickets you can go to spectator.co.uk forward slash budget